1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and associate professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today I'm excited to be interviewing Andrew Spira about his new book Foreshadowed, Malevich's Black Square and its Precursors. Let me begin by telling you a little bit more about my guest. Andrew Spira is an art historian, author, curator, and lecturer who has written numerous books, including The Avant-Garde Icon, Russian Avant-Garde Art and The Icon Painting Tradition, and The Invention of the Self, Personal Identity in the Age of Art. He graduated from the Courtauld Institute before working at the Temple Gallery, where he developed a passion for Russian art. For several years, he was a curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum, focusing on the collections of silver, metalwork, and jewelry. And he subsequently joined Christie's Education, where he was a program director for 14 years. The book he wrote, which we'll be discussing today, explores a painting known as The Black Square a radical artwork which astounded audiences when it was first exhibited in Russia in 1915. According to Andrew, no one had ever seen anything like it before, and yet it does have precedence. In fact, over the 500 years before it was painted, several artists, writers, philosophers, and scientists had landed on the form of the black square or similar rectangles. Exploring these predecessors reveals layers of meaning that are often overlooked, but are deeply relevant to understanding Malevich's most enigmatic painting. Needless to say, I am thrilled to get to discuss this book with its author today, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Andrew Spira, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to to be here with you. Thank you yeah. for asking me.
1: We're going to dive right in here. I want to ask you a sort of traditional introductory question before we launch into talking about this book, which I I really am very excited to discuss with you. I wonder if you might begin by telling us a little bit just about yourself, maybe where you're from originally, how you became interested in art history. And of course, I want to know how you became interested in Russian art in particular. So just kind of give us some of your background, if you would.
0: Certainly. I'm a Londoner. I was born in London and I've lived in London for most of my life Uh, with a little foray into the countryside in my teenage years but otherwise I've been in the city um, all the time and I've been involved in art history since uh, I was about 16 or 17 I have artists in my family and so art was very much a part of my life and I became uh, a student of art history when I was about 16 17 went to the Courtauld Institute and studied uh, 12th century art I specialized in that very brief period which was possible to do in those days so I had a really blissful time Spending um, many months looking at manuscripts, looking at metalwork, looking at um, architecture, and so on and so forth. So it's very narrowly uh, focused on the Middle Ages primarily. And uh, even Byzantium didn't feature very uh, much in the picture at that time. But I befriended a specialist dealer in uh, Russian and Byzantine icons when I was there. And I used to go to his gallery and and hang out and um, go to talks that he gave. And by slow degrees, I became um, more uh, um, knowledgeable about Byzantine art and Russian art altogether. And um, it was really through his uh, in- initiative that I became involved. I would travel to uh, Russia Visiting medieval uh, churches and medieval cities. His name's uh, Dick Temple. Some uh, Russophiles will be familiar with him. He runs the Temple Gallery, which has been in existence for well, well, well over half a century now, and it really was the sort of hub of uh, icon. Uh, painting interests for, for many, many years. And I became um, friends with him, traveled to Vladimir Suzdal and Kiev and so on and so forth uh, with him, which was hugely inspirational. And then eventually I, I began working in his gallery, which was uh, a great privilege and great pleasure. And so I learned uh, very much on the job. It was all uh, very new to me, but I learned by handling the objects and it was, it was very thrilling. And then one thing led to another uh, in a very evolutionary way. Uh, which was uh, fascinating. I, I was planning to put on an exhibition uh, of the relationship between Russian icons and Russian avant-garde artists. It, it occurred to me when I was sitting in the gallery for hour upon hour that there was a sort of uncanny resemblance uh, between the two. And so I thought a, a small exhibition with a, another uh, art gallery, a uh, contemporary art uh, um, Commercial art gallery in in London would be an interesting project. So I started researching this, thinking it would take me a month or so. But it was a, it was a terrible mistake uh, to think that, and I suddenly realised it. There was just so much more material than I dreamt of that it it, uh, it took me 20 years to really um pat it all out uh, in, in my mind and i ended up publishing a book on the subject in 2008 on the relationship between the two so it was very organic and evolutionary accident in a certain sense um and i started traveling to russia a lot often taking groups to visit cultural sites and it and it um it, it was an evolutionary journey and by slow degrees, uh, the, uh, the icons and the avant-garde began to meet in the middle. And suddenly I began to have a total picture of, the, of Russian art altogether, whereas I t- tended to leapfrog over the 18th century uh, for quite a few years. But eventually uh, they joined and, and uh, it all fell into place. And it continues to be a, a great passion of mine.
1: Mm hmm. I think a lot of what you're describing is is evident in this book. And, you know, I want to talk about those elements, but maybe before we launch into the material itself or specific questions I have, I always like to ask, you know, how writing this particular book foreshadowed about Malevich's black square and these precursors how did it come about you know as a book it can be for for those of us you know who are art historians you know things can be passions but we never ultimately turn them into publications sometimes so how did this happen
0: well this is quite a a quirky book because it's not exactly art history because it's not a history of the black square which has been written Uh, quite a lot, nor is it really about influences because much of the material covered in the book was not known to Malevich himself. So it's a little bit... Uh, oblique in that sense; it's it's got a sort of intuitive dimension to it, and and so I didn't sort of push it as a research project in myself, but I began to just notice black squares as one does after a while, and I thought three or four of them. I mean, Robert Flood's uh, famous uh, "The Universe Before the Creation of the World" (1617) is perhaps the best known of the precursors, and it's been cited in many books on the subject. And I picked up uh, two or three or four and then five of these. And it it just began to cohere in my mind as, as a bigger issue. I think what really pushed me over the line is when I realized that Pavlov had used black squares in his experiments with dogs. And when I saw, when I discovered that, I thought that is a sign from the beyond that this has got to become more than just a... Um, You know a a sort of a curiosity but it really is is a phenomenon and then and then it actually came very very quickly
1: Mm. quickly. well you have set me up beautifully for a bunch of the questions that i had or a bunch of things that i wanted to dig into i'm glad you described this book as quirky because i think it is very very much an unusual piece i mean the I want to ask you. You know, the structure of it is somewhat unusual. It's basically a kind of long form essay. Um, But before, maybe before we dig into these particulars and the ways that this isn't art history, which you know it it really isn't, and I found it very refreshing in that sense. And I want to ask you more about that. But maybe we we need to lay you know a little bit of groundwork here, um, just for our listeners who haven't read the book. Maybe are thinking of getting the book um, in terms of what it's about and how it works and and kind of. you do in here so maybe it's best if i say right off the bat full sort of transparency that i loved the opening line of this book andrew really it grabbed me from the very beginning in a very short preface before you launch into the the remainder of the sort of primary meat, the text of the book you say For years, I have tried to convince students that Malevich's Black Square is the most interesting and beautiful painting ever made. Oh, I love this line. And I think, and it immediately appealed to me, maybe again, full transparency. I teach Malevich and the Black Square specifically I would say several times a year, you know, in the fall and in the this, this spring semester. In fact, I just taught it in class yesterday and before our Thanksgiving break last week and I'm teaching it in my third upper level seminar tomorrow. So it's like it's like Black Square Bonanza time of year for me. And I think you're so right that this business of convincing students or people in general that that this is a really special piece you know, that's not an easy or self-evident thing. I think it's some of the heaviest lifting I do all semester in terms of this cell is hard. So maybe by way of sort of getting into what you do in this book, can I ask you, why do you think it's such a tough sell, this, that it's the most beautiful, most interesting, as you say, painting ever made?
0: Well, well pe- people come to art with expectations of, of a kind, implicitly, and this picture really... Uh, delivers nothing in that respect. All your expectations of narrative, sensation, self-expression, none of that really uh, operates. And so the conventional uh, frame of reference in which art appreciation happens isn't there. And a lot of people think that's uh, vapid and possibly even uh, bloody minded on the part of the artist. And there's no doubt about it, Malevich was being challenging. But I think there's a significance about the painting that is is profound. Often we look at works of art from a purely historical point of view, as if their significance is to complete a historical narrative narrative, but there is, I think, uh, 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 an experiential dimension to uh, art appreciation that is terribly important and is often forgotten, and so I wanted to bring that. I want to bring that to that to the the forefront. And really, the significance of Malevich's painting, I think, shouldn't just be seen as historical. I think we should allow ourselves to to taste its intended significance as a as a, an experience. If you see what I mean, and that really is what he what he was really saying. I think with the picture is that we don't need art anymore to connect us with the the depth in ourselves. If you think about music and painting, conventionally speaking, if you want to, you know, you've got time at home and you want to relax, you go and put on a piece of music and, and really what you're doing with that is you're manipulating your circumstance to induce a kind of experience in yourself to facilitate a kind of contact with a depth in yourself that is not otherwise there. And uh, Malevich was really progressively saying that, that art is functioning as a kind of crutch in that capacity if we're constantly using it to induce experiences of depth in ourselves. And he was saying that if you wean yourself off this addiction to art, the mediation of art, you can actually contact that depth immediately. That is to say unmediated. So he, he with the black square, he's really taking us to uh, the, 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 the brink to the to the brink of the canyon and now he's saying put your money where your mouth is and dive into the experience of depth you don't need the crutch of art to mediate or license your access to depth your depth is your nature it is innate inexperience do you see what i mean and so you can relinquish well, I know
1: exactly art. what you mean yeah so the
0: relinquishing of art is actually a liberation because you are becoming empowered in yourself to be the profundity that we constantly seek somewhere else and that i think is a beautiful gift if you can receive that gift it is a moment of great beauty so we're not talking about aesthetic experience alone having said that when you become very familiar with the picture it does become in a strange way physically very beautiful and i do love i love it i love the texture of it i love the slightly misshapen quality of it uh, so it do, it does it's, it's not a cold clinical piece of geometry it's got a lot of character it's got a lot Okay. And its story just reinforces that because it's, all, all the sort of neo-primitivism um, that precedes it in Malevich's work is, is present there. He didn't just switch off and become a cool character, far from it. It's a very passionate it's very passionate and primal object, and it has this really liberating dimension. I think it's, it's still a live issue. How do we access depth in ourselves without depending on mediation? Whether it's art or technology or landscape or whatever it might be, we're constantly encouraged to seek it outside of ourselves, and he's giving us permission, as it were, to find it in ourselves.
1: Hmm. Wow. Oh, everything you said was was just so beautiful, and I mean, now I'm thinking, oh, I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna assign this uh, podcast episode, this interview to my students, and they'll they'll understand everything they need to know about it without me in the first five minutes or whatever here. Gosh, I'm trying to think. All my questions seem so mundane now in the face of, of such poetic ideas. It
0: is also a mundane painting, of course. It is that it is, it is comedic as well. It is absurd. It is an absurd painting, and that's part of its history. If you look at some of his the paintings that he was painting shortly before the Black Square, and indeed on the very canvas of the black square itself is painted over a number of pictures, there's a lot of absurdity in there. In there. And, and he wasn't just dismantling the visual world in an elegant and graceful way like the Cubists, for instance. He was, he was positively interrupting that process and forcing it to become contorted and jarring imagery and truncated words and things of that this kind. He's, he was quite inelegant about it. Um, as well, so I think one shouldn't project a kind of architectural uh, beauty clarity and pristine.
1: yeah, no way. One, uh, I definitely don't when I teach it. Well, you know, maybe the the last thing that you were saying does does lead me back to to some of these notes that I took and sort of things that I wanted to ask you about. i you know it's hard because I think I found that there were so many ideas in the book or or arguments you put forward, though they're, they're subtle, um, that I found intriguing. I mean, that just really seemed to awaken something new, even in someone like me, who I think, I mean, I've read vast amounts of the scholarship on this painting, though there's so much, I don't know that you could tackle all of it ever. But I'll even admit that, that one of them that you put forward fairly early in the text This idea that the Black Square is, as you call it, an archaeological site, incorporating its own past within itself materially. Um, I thought, you know, that's so well said. And I actually already incorporated that into the lecture I gave yesterday. I described it just that way, that it's an archaeological site. And... I used it to sort of segue to the, one of the most interesting things about the painting, like you already mentioned, that Malevich reused the canvas and that there are two earlier paintings underneath the work that we now see today. So uh, I'm not sure like exactly what I want to ask you about this. You also talk about as you were just referencing, Malevich's alogical works from the year to before the Black Square, um, including the composition with the Mona Lisa from 1914, which is another quite famous work, again, a kind of precursor on the way to the Black Square, and how it involves forms of occlusion, the layering of images and forms, eclipsing each other, and how this relates to iconoclasm. I mean, I just, I just really loved the sort of story that you the journey you took us on in in that section in a number of other places and maybe my question is about how you how you came to these arguments or ideas you know how did you lock into the the way that this thing flows because i think there is a really interesting flow to it overall sometimes you're talking about Malevich's black square and then other times you move away from it and you always come back to it. I mean it's it's just nice. It, it
0: is a very paradoxical painting and I'm I'm sure it's meant to be. One of the paradoxes is that it erases uh, its associations. It pretends it or claims to have no associations. That's part of its, its iconography, is that it stands independent of all associations, because associations are something that the mind will latch to and make interpretations around and so on. So by eliminating associations, both external via subject matter and internal via composition, it really is just becoming a, a kind of existential object. And that's part of the the conceit you could say so it's doubly paradoxical that it is actually painted over these other uh, pictures which have become a part of the body of the painting and so I think one has to see it uh, in that context as well you can take it out of history on the one hand and but on the other hand it's it's very much its history is a part of its its genesis and I think it's it is important Has a kind of momentum if you think of momentum Is really the kind of tension in a moment that has been built up by the past, you could say. And this picture has momentum in it, it has the force of the past in it, in a certain sense, even if you can't see it in historical references and things of that kind. So I think that that paradox is interesting, that it's an independent, a standalone object, but its history, every object has history, but it, its history is materially present in it I think is very fascinating when you look at it as an object and not just as an image or as a substance and not just a surface you could say which you have to do I think. And another thing that I think is uh, relevant to this is that yes it does uh, uh, put all associations to one side but it was famously displayed when it was first displayed in 1915 across the corner of the, the gallery space as many uh, followers of Malevich will be aware but uh, some of your listeners may not be it was it was displayed across the corner of the room which to any Russian will have immediately signified uh, icon painting because icons the sacred art of the Russian Orthodox Church were hung across the corners in Russian homes and there will be nobody who missed that association so Malevich is getting rid of associations on the one hand with regard to the painting in itself but generating them on that occasion from the way he uh, exhibited the painting and so again you see this this double movement independence but associations and that association is to do with the sacred status um, of of the the picture's significance which i mentioned earlier so he's constant. He's constantly uh, playing this this double game. I think not necessarily strategically, but it's just two levels of interpretation that one can always bring to bear on it.
1: Mm-hmm. That's very yeah. And certainly,
0: one thing that's constantly uh, overlooked in the famous photograph of the exhibition in nineteen fifteen when the paintings hung across the corner. First of all, is the neoclassical moulding in the ceiling. <laughs> which I think is very, very interesting because, of course, it places the picture in, a, in the context of much bigger history in a certain sense, because that moulding is a sign of a kind of aristocratic grandeur and all the values of the Roman Empire as they uh, you know, resonated through the ages. So that, I think, is an interesting detail. Also, there's a chair, an empty chair in the picture, which, again, has a has a kind of poetry about it that I think is is very affecting. And you know, this is part of the historical reality of the experience around the picture. So it's constantly zooming into it as an absolute object, and then zooming out to see how it functioned in its environment.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I liked your discussion of that crown molding across the top. I, again, it, it really. I don't know. What I think was so effective about your book was the way that, you know, even just brief mentions of things would make me look back at whether it's that documentary photograph, which I feel like I've seen a thousand times and never thought there was anything new to see in it. But yeah, I did. I somehow missed that. I mean, maybe that's my own oversight. But yeah, there were just there were a lot of gifts in this book in terms of not just and we haven't even really started talking about the precursors yet, but but just in terms of, as it says on the back cover, your discussion of these precursors and in in this sort of long form essay overall, recalibrates your understanding of the painting, even if the things that you're talking about as being precursors to the black square were not things that Malevich necessarily ever saw or knew about. I mean, that that's that's just a really intriguing thing that you built. Let me maybe, go back for a moment and and ask you, I keep sort of foreshadowing, oh, there. Uh, that's the first one I'm going to say foreshadowing and it's the title of the book. Um, I want to ask you about the structure of the book, because I think it maybe halfway through it, it started to strike me that it is essentially a long form essay. I mean, I don't know, maybe you can tell us what the overall word count of it ended up being it's very readable, don't get me wrong, but there are no sections, there are no parts, there are no chapters, there are no breaks, it, it just, it flows. And, you know, as someone who writes books, I immediately thought, ooh, this is so interesting. It's so different from how most books of this kind of subject in, in art history or on, on art in general are structured it made me think that you really wanted your reader to sit and and just take this whole thing in sort of in one go and that is how i read it i mean i just sat an afternoon and i don't know how long it took me a couple of hours and and read it you know beginning to end and i wonder if there had been chapters i might have stopped right i might have put a bookmark in and picked it up a couple of days later so how strategic was this long form essay structure to your writing it was a bit. It's,
0: it, it, it's a it's a good question it was a bit but i didn't know it was going to be mm-hmm. like that at the beginning it's about twenty two thousand words i think so yes it's not very long and if it had been longer i think it would have been impossible to have this uh, unstructured uh, uh, design in some sense there were various reasons for it one is that the the, the themes blend into each other so seam well seamlessly that I didn't want to impose a kind of artificial break between them. And they, I could have done that. I did think about it, and occasionally when I was writing it, I did stick in thematic headings just to help me organise the material. But, but then I would I would take them out again. So one could talk about the the uh, comedic aspect of it. There's a lot about absurdity and comic material. There's a lot about mourning. There's a lot about metaphysics. There's a certain amount about politics. All of these could have been themes. But I felt by prioritizing the simplicity of the theme, I was losing a kind of fluidity that I feel is very important uh, uh, to the overall experience of the book so I, was really th- I came to think of it as a kind of tone poem in the nine- 19th century you begin to get composers who instead of writing symphonies it's not it's not symphonic in any um, shape or form but the big composers would write symphonies in sonata form with four movements and the movements would follow a, a certain a pattern and then at the end of the 19th century you begin to get composers who write these tone poems which are just long bits of fabric in a certain sense. They don't necessarily uh, fall into uh, this conventional structure and they're not symmetrical. They... They determine their own structure, and they can last for anything in between, sort of ten and um, forty minutes. Uh, Sibelius wrote them, Liszt wrote them, uh, Schoenberg uh, wrote them in the early twentieth century, and that that structure eventually appealed to me more. So it's a kind of asymmetrical tone poem that uh, allows for a certain amount of improvisation uh, within the overall uh, flow.
1: Yeah. Well, I appreciate you answering that. I think my these episodes or these interviews have become more and more. i asking authors about some, sometimes about the mechanics of the writing, about stylistic choices they made, and you know, I hope that uh, I, I think we have a good amount of graduate students and things who listen to this. So I always hope that it's helpful to them. I don't know that. I don't know when I when I have an author like you who I mean, it's just a very sophisticated beautiful writer i always want to you know i want to know i want to sort of dig into the choices you made and i i'm glad to hear that that, what you said about the practicalities where you added sections and then took them out and i like all of your
0: it's it's a very important part of 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 the process of writing, rather as Malevich's painting conceals the mechanism, which we can see with x-rays and so on. Uh, Yes, there are mechanisms that you use consciously, unconsciously, you you build some scaffolding to do something, then you take the scaffolding down again. I think the craft of writing is a very interesting one. I really enjoy it, and it makes a lot of difference. The structuring of ideas is a very fascinating one. I think the structure of the book as a basically linear experience is, is, is fascinating. And it comes with conditions. I think we the fact that we do uh, a read books, for instance, in relation to the internet, I think it's very interesting that the book is a fairly structured and linear experience. The internet it is to me, it's more like a globe. Uh, There's nowhere to start and there's nowhere to end. You just spin the globe and read it. You'll never get the whole story. You'll never find the beginning. You'll never find the end, which has its own potential. A book, on the other hand, enjoys a certain limitation, which I like because it means that you can really be comprehensive in your uh, approach to an idea. So it becomes like an art form in a certain sense. And I think it, it the, the sense of the completeness and the structure are, are, are important. So yes, I did enjoy that when writing it. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see.
1: You know as you're as you're talking about it the more i'm thinking about it i'm realizing too i'll give i'll give you a little bit of credit where it's due here in my humble opinion i think it's much harder to write like like you did without section breaks and headers and little and and sort of pauses because it it means you have to you just have to have such good transitions constantly and when i think about and maybe this leads kind of to my next question Another thing that was really cool about this book was the vast spans of time that you drew together again without without sort of, you know, needing to stop and and start a new section called morning or start a new section called icons, you just it just seamlessly blended from one era and back and forth and I I mean, that's that's a very special thing. And I started kind of thinking, knowing what I do about your background, does this come from teaching sort of your ability to encapsulate these large periods of time and draw the threads together? Is it maybe from the tours that you lead, you know, where in museums you are sort of, Having to draw together vast periods of time, depending on the structure of the museum, the rooms you're entering. Maybe it was your time at Christie's. How did you get so good
0: at doing that? Thank you for putting it that way. It's 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 something I've always been uh, very fascinated by. Is well, the the modes of experience, the ways we experience uh, these things, not just taking the objects. Um, in isolation, but uh, having a much rounder and and richer picture uh, of that. So all of these different practices have really fed into the work. I I feel that the impact of history on us is is not just of academic interest, it's a kind of profound, uh, as I was mentioned earlier, has a kind of momentum that I think deeply affects us. I think our capacity to understand and interpret works of art is itself subject to historical development. So I've been very interested in this rather uh, syncretic uh, view of, of well, culture, you could say, which is why I, I think it was meaningful to write a book that's not chronological, particularly as in this case. But most of my work does revolve around a kind of uh, historical trajectory, because I think the, the way our understanding ideas, histo- the way our, un- our understanding uh, unfolds in a historical sense is, is so important. I don't think we are as free to understand things as we think we are. I think our mental capacities, you could say, are are determined by history as as much as the things we study. And, And so I like to have a very open... Uh, open view of the world and, and not get sort of drawn into a narrow perspective too much. So all the things you mentioned, curating for instance is terribly important, curating ideas. Uh, when you've got a limited a collection for instance, how are you going to put it together in such a way that the objects speak to each other? You're going to have to bring out themes that facilitate that kind of contact when you travel abroad. For instance, you don't visit places in chronological order on the whole <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Do you? It would be hard work. I dare say some people try to. Um, so all, all of these and teaching, of course, is, is a wonderful privilege because the students generate so many ideas. They throw you so many curved balls that it's, con- it's wonderful to, to constantly have that 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 input. And of course, by, by teaching, you're constantly t- testing out your ideas on students. So it's a, a very, very interesting and fruitful two-way experience. So yeah. sort of, all my experiences feed into it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I couldn't agree with you more in terms of teaching being a privilege, and and how it is a sort of maybe the initial testing ground for ideas. And I, the more years I teach, the the more I feel like it's absolutely inbuilt into into my research and my writing, and 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 sort of how that all comes about in ways I never anticipated years ago as a, a graduate student. Everything you said just now about you know the book not being chronological about it having this syncretic kind of method if I might call it that maybe being a little bit too too rigorous about it but you know this was a, one of the other things that was an aspect of the book I found so intriguing the whole time I was reading it I I kept being struck by what almost hit me as a kind of like anti-historical move. And I don't mean that in any sort of negative way. Like, I mean, it in the best possible way, you are not for the most part with few exceptional kind of moments interested in establishing the usual historical connections, chains of influence. Instead, I think I wrote in the margin at one point, it seems like Andrew is creating constellations of a sort that are visual conceptual scientific cultural I mean there are a lot of different things that are being drawn together and instead of this being at all about you know establishing that Malevich could have seen x or could have known x's writing or book or work or you know it it was about something else and I imagine that for you, this wasn't a a difficult thing to do to sort of break out of the usual art historical mold. I think for someone like me, I'm like, oh, no, I'm never going to get this past peer review. You know, there's no way I can establish that Malevich ever saw that thing from 1617, you know, but it, it creates a kind of vibrancy when you let that go that, that I found just a, a pleasure to read. So was there any struggle on your part to let go of the usual chains of influence and establishing who knew who and-
0: No, no there wasn't, no, there wasn't. It, ca- it came very uh, easily. I think, I mean, of course that chronology is very important in some contexts, but in this case, it, it wasn't. I think in, in a certain sense, I could have written the book Ask, asking and answering the question, what is this painting about? Okay, well, it's about mourning. It's about philosophy. It's about um, the absurdity, and uh, and taken an, a, a more structured approach, but. I didn't want to do that. It's sort of been done in some ways with the the conventional narration of the painting, which has been told in a lot of detail, and certainly the influence of the painting, which is ongoing. So really I I wanted to approach the picture with that material, but really what I was doing is setting up resonances. That's what I wanted to do, set up resonances. Um, And to to address those issues, but address them in such a way that they weren't explained into analytical a manner, Uh, weren't reduced. I didn't want to be reductive, reduce it to its component parts. I wanted to set the sympathetic strings in motion. Mm
1: I'm glad, I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad that you did it the way that that felt right. And There are other things and, I think
0: that would, would, I would, I've wondered about other uh, things you could do it with. For instance, take uh, Jackson Pollock and his drip painting. Could you approach that, for instance, through marbling papers or something of this kind? And there are other ways and i thought no that's not not really that wouldn't work in the same way because it would have an arbitrariness about it it, was, it would be like playing to sort of snap with the past it's easy to find precedents that don't have any inner resonance but what struck me about this case is that all the precedents have real significance because every aspect of Malevich's painting that I would choose to discuss if I were looking at it just in itself, every aspect is somehow accounted for in these other examples. And I thought that was very interesting. And also it raises the question about the almost archetypal power of the a rectangle a rectangle of uh, of blackness what what could that express i think in in western art historical context we're so attached to pictures i think it's interesting to consider for instance uh, take a 17th century still life painting which is the the most classic kind of old master painting every national gallery in the world must have one of these Uh, core pictures but it's actually an extremely unusual kind of picture to produce if you look at the human creativity as a whole the idea of painting something from our world perfectly ordinary things in the world bits of fruit glasses knives and forks in a in a a realistic manner not as you were introducing any kind of distortion to it is a very obscure thing to do but we've turned it into a kind of mainstream to such an extent that Malevich's black painting seems extremely odd because it's the opposite of that kind of conventional representation. But why do we represent things? What are we doing? I think it's very interesting. we have got lemons. Why do we paint lemons in a naturalistic way? What does, what does the, the painting of a lemon have that a lemon doesn't have. So this is the sort. Of, these are sort of very fundamental questions that are part of our artistic culture. And so Malevich's painting seems to be a complete and utter contradiction of that total approach to images altogether. And yet. There are these other examples. None of them have have artistic pretensions. Now, Levitges is a work of art, so its narrative context is art history. None of the other black squares that I discussed in the book are works of art. They're all scientific, they're comedic, they're illustrations. um, They all serve a slightly different purpose, but it makes you realize how conventional we are in, in the way we create history, you could say. And, and so it really questions the conventions of historiography, which is something that I am very interested in.
1: Yeah, I am too. And I, maybe that was what, what struck me so much is that, you know, it, it pushed in interesting ways against, as you've been saying, the, the way that we traditionally think, the way history teaches us to think, the way it... Sort of encourage us to, encourages us to create taxonomies and boxes and put everything in all you know on all these spots. And I, don't, I I read books like yours. There aren't many of them, I'll admit, that really give me sort of visions of there could be there could be other methods in art history. There could be other syncretic ways of putting these narratives together that I think do reveal something about your your origin point, whatever it is you're trying to actually talk about. In this case, Malevich's Black Square, but there's some. As you know, there's resistance outside of curation, I would say, in, in sort of traditional art historical writing and research. The idea of throwing away chronology, oh, throwing away the, the chains of influences, you know, it, it really gets a good number of people's feathers ruffled up, unfortunately.
0: One doesn't have to get rid of it. I think it's a question of complementing it and seeing seeing that it is a mo- it is a mode of presentation.
1: Yes, a it, mode, a yeah. method, yeah. It is mm-hmm. a mode.
0: It's very useful, very interesting, but there are other ways of approaching it.
1: Yeah. Um, it did make me think, you know, that, that maybe one of the hard things about this mode that you use for this book and the vast periods of time you draw together all these different, you know, kinds of objects, let's say, uh, visual images that come from so many different sources, scientific and literary and so on and so forth. At some point, I think I wrote in the margin... How did he ever, you, Andrew, how did you ever stop with this? You know, like once I found myself in the days after I finished the book, sort of seeing black squares everywhere, black rectangular quadrangles and things. And I thought, gosh, I wonder how he finally just said, enough, like, I've got it. This this is the book that, you know, it's done. Was there sort of a giant bulletin board or did you have a binder where you were keeping all this? I mean, just how you
0: put it, it together nat- and how yes.
1: limited is so intriguing to me
0: it just it felt natural it came to a natural pause uh, i can't really account for it but it i just felt that it's it's a uh, complete and mm-hmm. Everything I need to say is, yeah, having said that, I have discovered one or two oh. uh, black <laughs> since publishing it um, that I would love to have had illustrated in it. I refer to them in the notes, but they were too late to, to, mm-hmm. to be illustrated. And I'm, I hope there will be more. It's an ongoing story.
1: <laughs> yeah, I much. should say too, since you just mentioned the notes that the notes to this book are fascinating in their own way, and I encourage anyone who picks this up and does end up reading it, do not skip the notes in this particular book. You know, sometimes there isn't a, a great gold mine of new or extra information in there, but your notes had some some bits I was sort of underlining and putting, ah, oh, that's cool too, like you know, in the in the margins and and highlighting things. So I was delighted are-
0: to discover that uh, in 1915, a postcard maker in Britain produced postcards of seaside towns uh, at night and they were completely black with a white border around the postcard absolutely (laughs) with brighton at night or eastbourne at night written in the bottom right hand corner and it was done in 1915 so i thought that was just such a lovely uh, again, uh, and and it's it, I suppose it takes on more than this merely sort of snap significance um, on account. It, it's just a comedy thing on the one hand, but at the same time, these seaside towns did uh, put out their lights in 1915 because they were afraid of uh, bombings uh, from. Uh, The German Air Force and so it takes on a a slightly more political and and military dimension which ties in with some political resonances in Russia as well so that's something I mentioned in the notes but unfortunately didn't get to reproduce in the book so yeah the story did trundle on in a certain way and it will continue to do so.
1: Good example I think we've sold the notes well everyone's going to be looking (laughs) at the notes in this book when when they end up getting it um, I'm looking over, I'm just sort of picking because I'm seeing our time is starting to wind down. So I have to be choosy at this point uh, about what I ask you. Let me ask you this. And it was another thing that didn't strike me till till almost to the very end. But I found it interesting that's such a that's such a weak way to put it. I find it intriguing that you don't really engage with Malevich's writings in here which as you know is is usually central to all writing on this painting and on him kind of in suprematism the movement that he that this Painting Ushers in, was that a deliberate choice from the beginning, or how Not did that come?
0: Kind of- it wasn't a deliberate choice. It's I didn't. I mean, I did look at the writings, and I used as much material as I thought was relevant. Uh, but I didn't find very much material that I th- thought was particular to the subject. I mean, one, I think, important aspect of it is that it's very passionate and very colourful and quite impulsive, all of which is important because it does give you a sense of Alevich's personality uh, and how what a passionate uh, man I think he must have been, and, and how feverish his imagination was, and sometimes quite inarticulate as well. I think some of his ideas, his writings, are difficult to understand, certainly in translation, but I think in in Russian too. I'm not a, a, a Russian speaker, so I haven't uh, read them in the uh, the original, but I, I understand that they're pretty difficult to uh, understand in Russian as well uh, which I think just gives a sense of the feverishness of his imagination he's not a cold and calculating character and he described how painting the black square itself was a, a a rather passionate moment for him I think there was a the penny dropped for him and he painted it with i think great feverishness not
1: um... yeah Doesn't one, one of his students left behind a wonderful oft often quoted you know a bit about he couldn't sleep or eat for a week and you know yeah that gives exactly the sense that you're describing of this sort of feverish hasty you know he, he knew he'd hit on something and producing it was its mm-hmm. own kind of crucible as far as he described it in in later years significantly later years mm-hmm. Let me, I think I could probably get in one or two more questions here. And I, I have sort of at the very bottom of the notes that I took to maybe ask you what most surprised you about exploring the precursors to the black square at this kind of depth? Was there just, were there certain discoveries you made or moments where you were like, oh, wow, that's extraordinary?
0: Well, the abundance of the material that uh, was was surprising. If it had just been two or three I would have put I would have it would have been a just some happy chances. There's so much material it began to cohere into an issue for me, elevating it to a, another level. So that was surprising. I also discovered some very beautiful and touching and intriguing objects. For instance, the morning poetry is heartbreaking. Uh, some of it. And the the, the the books in which you get black pages, some of them are very, very small. They, they fit into the palm of your hand and you open them up. And page after page is black. And each page is printed with a wood block. And so that each one is slightly different. And especially if you've perhaps been educated into the subtleties of Differences of this kind through modern art, pr- probably. I would say I felt each page had its own passionate quality, and had something very particular about it. And then you get the the, the text of the elegies that are uh, uh, combined with the black pages is is very, very affecting, and I found that quite marvelous. Mm-hmm.
1: It makes me think of it at one point. You have a kind of a, a section where you talk about the black pages in the novel, um, the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy, right? And I think you use the word that, that these are, quote unquote, anticipating Malevich's black square. And I just immediately thought, oh, like that's that's such an intriguing notion. That again, I, I don't think traditional art history gets at enough this idea that certain things really do anticipate other other things that these resonances occur almost despite to the artists i mean it's similar maybe to the way that we often talk about artists don't even necessarily know everything that the works of art they're producing can possibly mean i mean that's our job as critics and historians right is to come in and draw these connections that, that artists may have sort of subconsciously placed in there but yeah, this idea of anticipation is—it's a special one. I think you really have made a contribution with a with a book that isn't, you know, something that'll take our listeners weeks to read or or something that's a, a real slog, you know, in terms of it being difficult. Not not at all. There's a lot in here that's gold.
0: But I think one thing that's important is is that the capacities change when somebody accomplishes something. They change our capacities you could say. They might might not necessarily be influenced directly by the thing itself, but they've set a new uh, series of, of possibilities in train. And so we might not be able to identify the source of our own developments because we didn't realize that that capacity had, as it were, been bequeathed to us by our predecessors. Ooh, yes, what I mean yes, by that. That's yes, very, very yes, important, yes. I think. But Trish Shandy was a, a marvellous companion all of this time. First of all, it was known in Russia at the beginning of the 20th century, and so it's not inconceivable that Malevich um, was familiar with the um, it's it's quirky uh, conceits. Um, but it also touches on other nerves. it's it's both tragic on the one hand and comic on the other. So it bridges those two zones very well because it's slightly absurd the way he uses a black square or black page in the book at the same time it is part of this morning tradition so it, it it's in both both areas there and also um, Lawrence Stern himself did include in the book uh, diagrammatic representations of his own timelines and so there'll be there are lines in the book saying this is how things progressed and they are literally abstract lines they're squiggles and in one or two occasions, they do go backwards. So in, in his novel, he does have sequences that seem to go backwards in time. Oh, that's and cool. We don't address that particularly in the book, but Lawrence Stern was very much playing around with these conventions and enjoying the poetry of them but also enjoying the absurdity of them. So it's mm-hmm. perfectly possible for there to be a kind of humour but also a kind of depth. They do not need to be separated from each other.
1: Mm-mm. No, and I think Black Square is a great example of that, right? Humour and depth and coexisting for sure in the in this canvas. I everything you're saying it sort of suddenly made me think of a question that I didn't originally intend to ask. But you know, I I intentionally don't usually look at reviews of the of the books that I'm doing interviews about. Maybe because I have sort of my own thoughts and opinions, and I don't want them to necessarily be colored by. What are, I don't know, strike me as sometimes arbitrary, sometimes reviews can be can be quite, quite juicy and quite good. Have you gotten much feedback from, let me say, especially the strong contingency of Malevich scholars who exist both in Russia and in both the UK and in America? I imagine, Andrew, that they will have opinions on this book. Um, Have you heard at all from them?
0: Actually, I, I haven't heard heard much. The book's only been out uh, for a few months, okay. and so it takes a little bit of time for the review process, I think, to kick in as far as publications are, are concerned. But informally, I have had feedback from friends who are uh, uh, academic and uh, involved in, in the subject, and, and they've enjoyed it very much. Um, they okay. appreciate that it's a little bit left field, but I think they yeah. enjoy that. I think they enjoyed it, and I think they, you know, some of these connections were were discoveries. So I think they've appreciated that too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I certainly did. I, you know, it was a, a sort of random. Well, I shouldn't say it was altogether random purchase on my part. I I have been working, as I mentioned before, we started recording the interview on. On Malevich research myself. So it was part of this sort of haul where I just went on Amazon and thought, okay, what, you know, I have books in my office that are somewhat dated on this. What's the newest stuff? And that's how I found your book and just immediately was like, oh, this is such a fresh take. There really are, you know, very intriguing insights in here that I'm going to add in, as I've mentioned, to lectures and to my own writing and things like that. Well, I have taken up a good amount of your time as I'm looking at the the clock ticking away here, but I wanna ask you the last traditional question on New Books Network, which is just to tell our listeners what you're working on now. What can we look forward to coming out from you in the future?
0: I'm working on a book about epistemology and about the conventions of knowing. What does it mean to know something? It's, a, it's not. A, it is a philosophical subject, of course, but I'm looking at it very much in relation to the history of diagrams, and I come to it from an art historical point of view. So it'll be a sort of combination of an art historical approach to diagrams and epistemology. It relates to a couple of books that I wrote um, just in the last two years on on selfhood. What 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 uh, is the background to the notion of the personal identity personal self and personal identity and how do we substantiate it in the world with cultural conventions and this is really looking at that subject the relationship between selfhood and the conventions of knowledge and knowing especially diagrams it sounds a little bit uh, um, esoteric and it's certainly a challenging subject but i'm going to make it as popular and accessible as i possibly can and it will be hopefully illustrated with glorious images mm. we'll see mm-hmm. nice. as
1: this book was maybe that's the last thing that i should say the, in terms images
0: of are important, yeah.
1: encouraging our listeners to pick up a copy of this is the yeah beautiful full color you know glossy illustrations throughout well thank you so much andrew for taking the time to talk to me about this really fascinating little book today i appreciate you being here
0: well thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you i really enjoyed it
1: All right, everybody, you have been listening to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Allison Lee, and I've been talking to Andrew Spira about his new book, Foreshadowed, Malevich's Black Square and its Precursors. As always, if you have questions or comments about this episode, you can contact me through my website at alison-lee.com or find me on Instagram at Professor Lee.